episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining me this week, we have got... Uh, I'm Morgan. I'm one of your regular Social Review editors. And I'm Sam Goodman, the Senior Policy Advisor at Hong Kong Watch and a former Labour political advisor. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Um, it's uh, going to be a really good discussion, I hope, um, about events in Hong Kong, about the work of Hong Kong Watch, um, because I imagine many of our listeners are looking at what's going on over there with great anxiety. Um, so just briefly, would you just be able to give a brief overview of what the work of Hong Kong Watch is and um, what exactly your role is? And then an overview of what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment and what the new national security law is and means. Sure, uh, my pleasure. I mean, so Hong Kong Watch was founded in 2017. It was, it's a cross-party human rights charity that focuses uh, looking at human rights abuses in Hong Kong and the maintenance of the one country, two systems model uh, under the Sino-British Joint Declaration. So effectively, uh, when Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1997, there was a treaty signed between Britain uh, and China that's lodged at the UN that said that, China, that Hong Kong's freedoms and its way of life would stay unchanged for 50 years. And that included having uh, an autonomous government, having uh, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, um, and also having an independent judiciary, uh, clearly very separate from the mainland. Um, and sadly, what the national security law does is it really sort of strains Hong Kong's autonomy and really challenges it in a way that it, that Beijing really hasn't done up until this point. Um, it's worth pointing out that Hong Kong, uh, within its basic law, its mini constitution, they have a right to implement national security legislation. Uh, the reason why this breaches the joint declaration, though, is that Beijing has unilaterally introduced this national security law. So Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, the Legislative Council and the people of Hong Kong, none of them saw the details of this law until it was implemented in Hong Kong last week. Um, and, you know, it really does introduce, I think, a sort of cachet of vague and draconian charges uh, for very, you know, undefinable things like subversion, sedition, uh, terrorism, and a very, I think, one that appeal, uh, really affects all of us, which is collusion with foreign political forces, um, you know, which really could apply to anything. You know, for example, you know, if Joshua Wong, you know, appears on, on your chat show, is he colluding with a foreign political force? Are you a foreign political force? Is Amnesty mm. International, mm. Um, you know, is the British government? I mean, these are big sort of questions that the law does not address at all. Mm. Um, and the other thing that's worth noting as well is that, first of all, under the law, it's very punitive, the sentencing. Uh, you can receive a minimum of 10 years to life in prison if you're, if you're found guilty of any of these offences. Yeah. Uh, but also it applies to expats living in the city, so Brits in Hong Kong, Canadians, and corporations and organisations as well who could be subject to financial penalties or they could be kicked out of Hong Kong um, if they're found to have breached this law. So it's very extensive and it has sort of far-ranging measures. Um, and I do think one of the things as well, finally to highlight, and then I'll let you go back to your questioning, um, is that... Uh, the people that will enforce this law, uh, Chinese security agents who for the first time will be operating in Hong Kong. Uh, they obviously have a reputation in the mainland for torturing people and getting confessions that way. Um, and also Carrie Lam will have handpicked judges overseeing these national security cases. So judges won't be able to challenge this law. It will be uh, supreme over any other Hong Kong law. And um, mentioning Carrie Lam, Carrie Lam could not challenge this law, could she? Or, or she didn't anyway. 
No, she she has no authority. Unfortunately, this law is uh, takes all precedence over any Hong Kong basic law. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that in some ways since last year, Carrie Lam has become something of a, a puppet figure in Hong Kong, losing a lot of legitimacy, not only with the people of Hong Kong, but also with the central government in Beijing. Something you um, had shared on Twitter from the director of Hong Kong Watch, or the founder, um, an article about the the law and it was talking about the potential ramifications of it and there was a hypothetical uh scenario in it about a student um a university here who would be sharing information about the hong kong protests and um you know while, while being a british citizen and then the chinese government um deciding well this counts as subversion um this counts as breaching um the national security law so is that is that you know, hypothetically, could the CCP listen to this podcast and decide that we are all breaching this national security law and demand our extradition? Hypothetically, yes. I mean, at the very least, they could certainly bar our entry from Hong Kong in the future. <clears throat> what, I, what I also wanted to ask about is because China is clearly acting here with a sense of impunity, right? In that China don't think that... China think that they can sort of breach the the um the handover agreement from the late 1990s um so what what would it take at an international response to sort of show china that it cannot act in 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 this sort of way in sort of breaching human rights and breaching international law like it is 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 now a sufficient moment for any kind of pressure and momentum to be building or is it unlikely that countries and corporations will act with the requisite sort of energy to do that what do you think i I mean you know we're starting to see the sort of formation i think of a collective response around hong kong Mm. uh the u.s congress last week passed a substantial bill on sanctions which will be targeted at the perpetrators of human rights abuses under this uh Mm. new national security law Canada is looking at Magnitsky-style sanctions. Obviously, there were calls this week in the UK for Dominic Raab to follow suit. Uh, there are, you know, we are working at the moment on an initiative for an international lifeboat campaign, uh, following on with the government's very generous office for British British national overseas passport holders. But we recognise, um, you know, that there are some Hong Kongers that won't be covered by the BNO policy. So we're working quite closely to encourage the Canadian government, the Australian government, uh, the Japanese government, the Taiwanese government, the European governments to also sort of share some of the burden. Uh, but you're right, like that's not enough. We have to follow the diplomatic route as well. That includes uh, in the UN. Uh, obviously, we, the British government passed a, a resolution condemning the national security law, which I believe was sponsored by 27 countries. Uh, the other week, uh, there's talks of an international contact group on Hong Kong to monitor the situation on the ground. I think we would endorse that as well. But I think you kind of need a, a sort of multi-layered strategy. Uh, and I think, you know, hopefully we're starting to see that. But obviously, there's there's a lot more work to be done. And China, uh, when the UK government made their offer of um, citizenship to um you know, passport holders, China, you know, issued warnings of, you know, not to interfere in Hong Kong and that it's not the UK's jurisdiction to be doing this. Um, I mean, realistically, what could China, how could China retaliate to the UK and to any other country which um, put forward citizenship packages or um, 
the kind of uh, lifeboat package which you which you just discussed. Uh, you know, I, I mean, you look at the, the case study of Australia, right? Uh, Australia proposed mm. an independent investigation into the outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan. And the response mm. from the Chinese government has been to slap tariffs on Australian goods going into China. Uh, they've threatened mm. that they will stop Chinese students going to study in Australia. Uh, and they have implied further punitive sanctions. Uh, you look at what's happened this week with Huawei, right? The Chinese ambassador mm. yesterday gave a press conference and he threatened some sort of ambiguous threats that if we don't accept Huawei, you know, there will be, uh, you know, there'll be ramifications for that. Um, of course, I suppose they'll be targeted at trade and maybe around students. Uh, but mm. of course, I suppose there's the wider issue that fundamentally the Chinese government might try and stop Hong Kongers uh, leaving the city if they can uh, from taking up the offer. So. Just, just basically locking down Hong Kong as 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 a hypothetical scenario. I mean, you call it a hypothetical, but Carrie Lam literally yesterday announced that anybody who is charged or suspected of a crime will not be able to leave the city under national security mm. directives. So yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable to sort of imagine that in the weeks to come there might be more measures like that. But I think mm. you know. They don't necessarily need to physically stop Hong Kongers from leaving. Obviously, they can put in place huge deterrence, you know, restricting the amount of money that Hong Kongers might be able to take out of the city and also restricting yeah. any interaction they might be able to have to come back or to obviously visit loved ones. I think, yeah. you know, I think we all recognise that it's a sort of last measure. Most Hong Kongers probably don't want to leave their homes and that, that's fair yeah. enough. A lot of them want to stay and fight, as you probably saw earlier with Joshua Wong's statement on the BBC. Um, yeah. So I think there are a lot of difficulties ahead in that regards. What's kind of Hong Kong watches like, like um, bet on the future, if you know what I mean? Like what do they think is going to is gonna go down? So the reason why I'm sitting here with my Fritzy internet is I, um, I lived in Hong Kong when I first left home. I really love Hong Kong and would very much like to go back there someday. And so it was very interesting to me seeing... You know, I um, when I saw like the first wave of this kind of umbrella protests, it's always seemed very like extremely hopeful. Uh, and I was wondering kind of what Hong Kong Watch kind of thinks is going to happen, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could offer a sort of optimistic message for the future of Hong Kong. Um, I think, yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> we're sort of heading for some very difficult times. Um, and, and I guess it's really going to depend how... Uh, Beijing and how the Hong Kong government decide to enforce this law. We've already seen 10 arrests last week and the first person, you know, has been prosecuted and put in jail on Monday. Um, and it really depends whether they decide to have a huge crackdown and sort of mass arrests, bearing in mind that there are already 9,000 Hong Kongers who have been arrested in the last year for various other offences, um, or whether they're going to take their time with this. Um, but you, you can certainly see the situation deteriorating quite quickly. Um, but I think, you know, Hong Kongers are very creative. They've shown great resolve. I mean, I don't know if everyone saw yesterday that there was a, a protest in a shopping mall where they were all holding up sort of blank pieces of paper. And then they were asked to disband by the police in some sort yeah. of absurd kind of scene. And the police sort of said that they were breaching the national security law for holding up a blank piece of paper. So in some ways, yeah. I do think that if they over-enforce the law, they're going to sort of really become a bit of a mockery, you know, a bit of a joke for the whole of the world. Um, and I don't necessarily think that, that Hong Kongers are going to go away or they might stay off the street, but I think that they'll find new and creative ways to protest. So in some ways, I am quite optimistic for the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. And I certainly think that if Hong Kongers move abroad uh, and the Hong Kong diaspora in general will stay strong and they'll stay certainly linked, they'll still have huge links 
with a pro-democracy uh, movement on the ground. But obviously this law is deliberately designed to try and scupper that and, and make it as difficult as possible. How did you get into kind of being involved in kind of Hong Kong policy and stuff like that? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I worked for the Labour Party for a couple of years doing sort of economic policy. Um, and then I was a parliamentary assistant. Um, and one of my first jobs was working for a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee when the Yellow Umbrella protest movement was sort of at its peak. Um, and this particular okay. member, I, I can't really name him because I think that would be unfair. But he, he didn't necessarily, well, he didn't necessarily see eye to eye with my view on, on, on the Yellow Umbrella protest movement. It's fair to say that he was quite sympathetic to the CCP's line um, and, and sort of thought that they were sort of meddlesome students who didn't really understand like how great they had it uh, under sort of CCP rule and how lucky they'd probably gotten that there was a, a democratic mm. and peaceful handover rather than a similar sort of crackdown that we'd seen in Tiananmen. Yeah, I know that's a direct quote, but... Um, so I think fundamentally that sparked, that yeah. whole period sort of sparked a lot of interest for me in the Hong Kong protest movement. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Hong Kong a couple of times, including earlier this year in January. So I think even in some ways when I was there in January, just the, the noted sort of difference on the streets, the difference between the police as well. They all look like sort of starship troopers, sort of cosplayers now, like running around the city. And it w I guess it would kind of be absurd, mm. obviously, if they weren't yeah. doling out such huge, you know, waves of brutality. Um, so that sort of piqued my interest in, in Hong Kong, as it were, um, and foreign policy more broadly. Oh, yeah. So I was really interested in the point you were making there about um, differences of uh, political view on on Hong Kong in, yeah, I know the Labour Party, but also kind of, yeah, the left more generally in sort of... Um, the UK and the US and Ireland's where I'm from. Not that anyone really cares what the view of the Irish left is or anything. Um, but yeah, so it's just like, it's it seems to me to be very difficult to like get people unambiguously interested in what I see as a, as a very solid kind of cause that the left support, e.g. you know, the kind of umbrella movement more generally. Mm. Um, yeah, and I've I've also like I used to be was more involved in um, a friend of mine was uh, was imprisoned in Nicaragua, and I had to kind of it's almost interesting parallels in trying to basically trying to get people who you would think would be automatic allies in certain things on side when when they're so uninterested, seemingly so in, uninterested in 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 these inter in these issues. Sorry, that was very prattling, but also I can see that I've now unfrozen so. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I completely get your point um, in that regards. And I think like, you know, fundamentally, the Labour Party, I, I think, does have a bit of a problem when it comes to foreign policy. There is a huge deficit of interest when it comes to foreign affairs and really to, I suppose, the world outside of the borders of Europe, I think, in general. Certainly a deficit in terms of interest in Latin America outside of maybe Cuba and Venezuela for some people. Um, it's just, it's, it's, sorry. No, please. It's ridiculous. The sort of like templating that seems to go on. It's just like, if I think this about this country, I must think this about this country and therefore I'll just replicate it with very little thought or nuance mm -hmm. um, across like, yeah. No, no, I, 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 think, I think you're probably quite accurate, to be honest. Um, but I do think with Hong Kong that there is a unique problem there just because it was a British overseas territory, the nature in which we obviously got it out of the shameful opium wars. And I do think that, there's a bit of a conflict for some people on the left with this idea that, of course, we're anti-imperialist, we don't like colonialism, um, mm. but also how do we stand up really for the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong 
and for some people i think i think they end up you know sometimes being exploited i think a bit by some of the the propaganda that's put out by the chinese government around that that really britain's only interest in hong kong is this sort of old colonial mindset when i think that couldn't be further from the truth i actually had a follow-up question to that about um do you think that um there is just this authoritarian tendency in some parts of the left which leads to some sympathy towards the ccp um or do you think it is do you think it's sort of ignorance about international relations and foreign affairs in general or is it both yeah i mean i i imagine it's probably a bit of both to be honest um i think certainly authoritarian tendencies certainly some sympathy to communism um, and also, I suppose that brand of communism as well in China, the story around the sort of communist Chinese state is sort of seen as a sort of, you know, quasi success model, whatever you want to define that to be in terms of economic terms. Certainly, there's no success in terms of human rights. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that kind of feeds into it. But I still think a lot of it goes back to this sort of anti-imperialist sort of sentiment um, that's clearly biased towards the West as well. Um, and that really imperialism is a very Western concept and therefore... To be anti-imperialist, you have to be anti-Western. And I think that feeds into some of the sort of debate around China more broadly. What do you reckon to the... I'm finding incre- I'm increasingly fascinated by seeing all these sort of like conservative figures on Twitter with the, the Hong Kong flag in their, in their bio. And it just, I don't know, it, it, in some ways it baffles me, but also it, it, it also kind of makes sense. I don't know, like Chris Patton's a Tory, you know, maybe it all follows, you know, that's all. <laughs> I mean, I was interested to hear Philip Hammond talking today about the need to quash um, kind of this rising anti-Chinese sentiment in the Conservative Party. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a Labour Party member. I'm not particularly clued into, you know, the debates below the line and gone Conservative home. But um, yeah, I don't know, it would seem, yeah, what do you, what do you reckon to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't really sort of agree with those comments fundamentally. I actually think that, you know, as a former foreign secretary, perhaps if Philip Hammond had been a bit stronger on Hong Kong in the years that he was foreign secretary for, uh, yeah. the Chinese government wouldn't feel right now that they have carte blanche to act in Hong Kong and really erode sort of human rights and basic freedoms. So he has responsibility to bear there. But I do think the Conservative Party's been on a pretty extraordinary journey just in the last few years when you think of sort of David Cameron George Osborne with his golden era of close relations with China getting all the infrastructure investment to a period of time now where the conservative MPs on the back bench have got the China research group they're talking about you know getting rid of Huawei basically out of our 5G network and our 4G network eventually um, and also trying to restrict trade with China it's been quite a a big journey really for the Conservative Party and you're right I think it is it could be the beginnings of a sort of civil war between them but I don't think that that analogy necessarily applies just because I think that sentiment within the Tory party at this point is probably swaying uh, in favour of those who would have a, a less strategically dependent uh, relationship with China so in some ways I think Philip Hammond and the Osbournes are kind of in the minority. It was interesting you talked about what Philip Hammond could have done when he was foreign secretary because this was something that I was thinking about as well I was like does does the rest of the world, um, certainly those nations which um, interact with China on a substantive basis, do do they also bear a bear a sense of responsibility for what is happening for not acting and being stronger sooner? Like, is there another timeline where this isn't happening right now because the rest of the world was pretty firm in its 
opposition to these encroachments of human rights in Hong Kong, but also within China itself. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that the world has a responsibility to stand up against the human rights abuses in China, especially against the Uyghurs. I think you know there's a real dereliction of duty there. Um, I think with Hong Kong, and you know we find this in our day-to-day -day work in Hong Kong Watch, it's, it's strange, but a lot of countries even today take their lead from Britain when it comes to Hong Kong, because we are a co-signatory of the joint declaration. Even the Americans, to some degree, welcome Britain's leadership on this issue. And I think it's very, very hard to rally the world to act again, you know, to stand up for Hong Kong, as it were, if the British government isn't doing their utmost as well. And that's why, actually, in some ways, it's good that the British government came out with this generous BNO offer. But they've really got to start thinking about what what's the next salvo here, because that's the bare minimum that you can do. And actually, if your whole if your whole argument about Hong Kong is just oh, all the Hong Kongers should just leave Hong Kong and come here, a lot of people are going to start yeah. arguing that you know Boris Johnson is basically waving the white flag of surrender here. And I think there's also a massive kind of which I was really pleased to see Lisa and Andy talking about a massive um, kind of economic disparity in that you know the people who will be able who will be able to. Uh, come here and and you know make good on make good on that promise are you know the sort of english speaking like um you know hong kong elites who in many ways are quite sort of um are incredibly internationalist already so it's yeah you wonder how much actual kind of utility there'll be in that pledge yeah no i mean i i completely agree with that i mean the government have said that they won't have any recourse to public funds so they're going to have to, you know, have the money to physically move to the UK to physically support themselves yeah. here. Um, you know, they probably have to pay the NHS surcharge. You know, they probably have to pay other fees on the path to citizenship. It's actually quite an expensive endeavour when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. The 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 sort of um, financial immigration side of it is quite quite interesting because obviously a lot of people have noticed this contradiction of a political party and government which has spent many years, uh, you know, championing the end of migration essentially a free movement and which is now simultaneously claiming three million people can come here unquestionably and obviously we're not going to question that we think it's a good thing but um there is a clear contradiction in the conservative party's messaging on this and its rhetoric um do you foresee that being a wedge issue do you foresee with it within the conservative party within their mps and their members of using the immigration argument against welcoming people from Hong Kong? Or do you think the party is willing to put their immigration concerns aside and sort of consider Hong Kong a special case, as it were, that they wouldn't for the rest of the EU, any other country? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, you have to go back really to the signing of the joint declaration and the sort of guarantees that were given to Hong Kongers back then. I mean, you know, this isn't a policy that the Conservative government have come up with overnight. Really what they are doing is basically fulfilling a promise that was made by, you know, Margaret Thatcher's government, by John Major's government, which was always that if things go south and the Chinese Communist Party decides that they're not going to keep to the terms of this agreement, you will always have a place here in the UK. So that's that's something that's often missed in this in this argument. But I think the other thing to point as well, and you kind of allude to it, is that you know, there's cross-party consensus over this issue. There's public support for this as well. You know, in a time where our politics is becoming increasingly polarised, this seems to be like one of the very few sort of unifying issues. So you do hope that it carries through. And I suppose as an organisation, one of the things we're starting to think about, um, and a little bit worry a little bit about, but I don't think that we necessarily need to worry too hard about, it's just ensuring that the Hong Kongers that do come here 
uh, get the welcome that they receive, that they're able to integrate, that we don't see the kind of backlash in the country that, you know, we sort of saw over over EU immigration, you know, the late 2000s. Um, because that would be a real shame, I think, if that we encourage Hong Kongers to abandon their lives in Hong Kong, only to sort of face, you know, levels of discrimination here in the UK. And that sort of leads um, into something which I've been thinking about recently, sort of looking looking to the future. Um, so, as as we've mentioned, plenty of different states have made offers of citizenship or said that they will make offers of citizenship. So you mentioned Australia, the UK obviously has. There was an interesting passage in the Financial Times the other day about um, a Hong Kong billionaire, I can't remember the name, who's speaking to the Irish government about setting up some kind of charter city on the off the coast of Ireland with um, to house 50,000 um, Hong Kongers. Um, and you can sort of see this potential future where there's a big Hong Kong diaspora spread across the world. Um, either because they claim former citizenship or because they claim political asylum, fleeing from political persecution. Um, do you, I mean, do you, how probable do you think that outcome could be slash, you know, do you think that could have major ramifications for international politics of any kind? If there's sort of portions of Hong Kong citizens dispersed across the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with that sort of analogy. Although I think, um, It'll be interesting to see how many Hong Kongers take up the offer from the British government. Yeah. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take yeah. a while. A lot of the Hong Kongers we talk to on the ground are still waiting to see how this law is going to be implemented and the impact it will have on their lives. But yeah, I think the worst case scenario, yeah, you could have Hong Kongers evenly spread across the world. Although, you know, it's worth pointing out that there's already a huge Hong Kong diaspora community in Canada, in Australia. And, and in the UK to some extent, uh, precisely because of you know previous crackdowns, either in, in the mainland or obviously uh, worrying about crackdowns uh, just before the handover in 97. For, for people who are perhaps wanting to leave Hong Kong and are anxious about it or afraid or, or waiting to see how the law will be um, properly enacted first, um, particularly for those people who are uh, British expats, British citizens, for example, or um, people who live in Hong Kong but study in the UK. Um, several friends of mine live in Hong Kong, um, a university. Um, is there, what kind of response do you foresee from the British government or from any government really, which has um, either their citizens um, sort of ensnared in this, ensnared of this national security law or um, Hong Kong citizens who come and study and work here um do you think it would be a pretty aggressive response from any other states or would it depend on would it depend on the countries yeah i mean i i think at the moment you've seen the the british foreign office the canadian foreign office and the australian foreign office all review their guidance about hong kong uh, for citizens living abroad you know effectively the guidance now is the same as if you were traveling to mainland china being careful about political sensitivities the risk potentially for being arrested under this law. Um, so that's one consideration. Obviously, again, that will depend. That guidance may change. I think, again, it will be entirely based on whether any expats fall under the law anytime soon and the implications that might have. I think for Hong Kong students abroad, um, you know, there have been cases in Canada of Hong Kong students who've studying abroad who've claimed asylum, who said that they don't want to go back. Uh, we might start to see that a little bit more in the UK um, or in Australia and other places. So that's something to watch out for. 
But again, I suppose at the same time, it still is one of those things where we're just not sure. Um, and I think a lot of it will be responsive to events on the ground. Something, something else which, which I've been thinking about, and we sort of alluded to this earlier about um, people within the left who maybe don't take much of an interest in international politics and, and what's going on in other countries. Um, but the same is true for a lot of, um, you know, the electorate as well. You know, it's, it's always a frequent, it's a frequent thing across numerous different countries about um, not caring as much about what's going on outside of your borders. So I guess, what would your, what would your message or response be to, to those kinds of people who think like, oh, well, you know, this seems bad, but it's not affecting me. It's going on halfway across the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, standing up for Hong Kong would necessarily be a vote winner. But fundamentally, um, this is a treaty that Britain's a co-signatory of, and it is a humiliation. And there's no other way of describing what's happened in the last couple of weeks. It's a complete humiliation for the British government that we signed an agreement. We helped try to hold China to account at the UN. And the Chinese have effectively said to us, the Chinese government, that they don't care. They think we're irrelevant. They describe the joint declaration as a historic document. Um, and then they try and claim that we have no rights over people who have British passports. So I do think that feeds into the psyche. I think it affects our standing in the world. It affects our trading relationships. It affects our alliances with people. Um, you know, allies will look at us differently if we're not willing to stand up for the things that we sign and ensure that those people mm. that have uh, treaties with us abide by them. So I think it all does feed into a variety of other things. I mean, it also feeds into sort of the economic situation as well. I mean, you saw this with uh, HSBC and Standard Chartered, right? Uh, British-based banks who've publicly come out and supported the national security law. Um, and there's big questions as to what the ramifications should be for that in the UK. HSBC and Standard Chartered have regular access to the Treasury. They often go in for private talks with the Chancellor. Should they be restricted? Should their access be restricted? Because fundamentally, they're challenging the policy of the government and they're challenging our international standing. Um, and in HSBC's case, I think there is some sympathy for it. Uh, Two thirds of their profits are raised in Hong Kong. Uh, from a business perspective, you can understand why they have to stand up publicly for this law. They're basically being browbeaten in private by the CCP. But at the same time, for a bank like Standard Chartered, who a couple of weeks ago was tweeting in support of the Black Lives Matters protests against police brutality, and then the following week tweets in support of a law that would allow even more police brutality in Hong Kong. I mean, it's, it's just kind of, it doesn't add up. Um, so there are big questions about that and how we hold British companies to account as well. And I think that, again, feeds mm. into the psyche of the electorate and the sort of political environment mm. where we debate these issues. It, it, does, it does seem like this is an issue which could really um, expand electorally over the next couple of years. So you, so you said that you didn't think it would be a vote winner, but do you, do you think it's possible that, you know, you can tell you can you can tell a political narrative of particularly in relation to brexit um and this whole mantra of global britain which the conservative party has signed up to and which you know by default the labor party will also be signing up to because we are leaving the EU. well we've left the eu and we'll probably be leaving the eu um in six months time um but do you think it's possible to tell a sort of political narrative about the need to need for a newly independent nation to um, stand up for the rights of democracy and liberty and human rights um, across the world and to sort of take a kind of moral leadership on this, whether this is Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer. Um, and maybe that could be a vote winner. Or do you think people will, won't really be as attracted to it? No, I mean, I, I, I think you're right there. I think that like, while foreign policy alone isn't a vote winner, 
I think the stances that our leaders take on big foreign policy issues feeds into whether we think that they are credible prime ministers or credible prime ministers in waiting. So I have been, you know, I, you know, we've been surprised by the fact that Keir Starmer hasn't been asked about this issue. Um, and that's, you know, that is quite surprising that, you know, the last few weeks, Keir Starmer hasn't said anything about Hong Kong. He hasn't said anything about the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. You know, of course, part of that is that you've seen huge leadership uh, from Lisa Dandy and the rest of the Shadow Foreign Office team, Stephen Kinnock. But you do think that this is one of the biggest foreign policy issues of the day. And Keir Starmer should have an opinion on it and he should have a stance on it. Um, and so from our perspective, it, it would be good, I think, uh, for Starmer to say something about it to express his views about it, maybe. I mean, you know, he was a human rights lawyer for most of his most of his career. You think he would have a position on this? Keir Starmer seems to, seems, has not said anything on Hong Kong, that Lisa and Andy, you say, take a very strong leadership position. And that would seem, from my viewings, would seem to kind of fit more broadly with his foreign policy, um, what's the word I'm looking for, approach. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I, th- I think, to be honest, that. The, the problem is, is that, you know, so much of the job of being prime minister is foreign policy, right? Or it has like an international component, you know, with it's trade or, you know, it's dealing with other countries. Um, to be a leader of the opposition, like often the sort of the assessment they make is that there's not a lot to be gained out of speaking up on foreign policy and there's a lot to risk instead. So I don't think it's necessarily something that's specific to Keir Starmer's leadership. I mean, I mean, look at the sort of supposed foreign policy positions that Jeremy mm-hmm. Corbyn took, right? despite the fact that he was somebody who claimed that his passion was foreign policy. Actually, when you look at his sort of leadership over the last few years, he didn't really talk about foreign policy all that much. Uh, Everyone remembers Ed Miliband's silence over Syria, right? Um, Other than the fact that he voted down any sort of airstrikes against uh, Assad over chemical weapons. But he didn't really say much after that. Um, So fundamentally, I, I think it's just part of a pattern of being leader of the opposition where you don't really necessarily want to go for the big foreign policy issues. I don't necessarily think that's the right thing. I think actually it's a bit of a mistake. There are opportunities here to critique the government's policy. Um, and I still do think actually for a, a sizable portion of British people, like they do hold a, a sort of special place in their heart for Hong Kong, either because they've lived and worked there, they have family over there, or they understand some of the history around it. So I do think that he could, you know, he could probably play on that a bit, but... I just think at this point he's decided that it's not worth it and probably following the strategy that's better to say nothing than to say something and be wrong. I, I, I had one final question, perhaps it's a sort of hopeful question. Um, with the... How, how likely is it, is it at all likely that the national security law will be rolled back or changed in Hong Kong? Or is it, this is it now? No, I mean... I mean, actually, the likelihood is that they're going to continue legislating and they will probably introduce um, other forms of legislation. Um, Macau, they passed a very similar sort of national security law a few years ago. And then what followed uh, was a law around personal data where they were requiring Facebook and WhatsApp and some of the digital companies uh, to pass on the personal data of their users. And you may have seen, and we haven't alluded to it yet, but in the last few days, Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp have all come out and said that they won't be passing any data onto the authorities. Yep, TikTok's just left Hong Kong um, until they understand the ramifications of this law. Um, So I guess the the big sort of next step for Hong Kong, really, in some ways, is the question of whether freedom online is going to stay around for the medium term future and whether the sort of the Great Firewall will be extended to Hong Kong. Um, I, I suppose the optimistic thing 
if there was some optimism to be found in the best case scenario is that this law isn't used extensively and that actually in the next few years they sort of they hold back on executing the law but um so far we haven't seen any evidence of that so you just said that um macau rolled out a similar law is there anything we can learn from obviously it's a different kind of set of all set of agreements and what have you but from portugal's approach yeah i mean i mean probably not just on the basis that you know portugal i think the agreement they signed when they handed over macau was slightly different from the one underpinning obviously Hong Kong, the one country, two systems model. And it does seem that Portugal's mm-hmm. sort of voice in anything to do with Macau these days is quite limited and small. And it's quite interesting, actually, because I think you alluded to it earlier, Jasper, there's this whole sort of debate about Brexit and about whether like Britain standing outside of the EU, at this critical moment for Hong Kong has weakened sort of the international opposition to what's happening in Hong Kong with the national security law. But, you know, fundamentally, Portugal is a member of the EU. Um, and when stuff happens in Macau, it's not necessarily like the Portuguese managed to rally all the other member states of the EU into standing up for Macau. So I don't know which side of the argument I fall on on that. That's obviously actively being debated on Twitter. Um, but, but I do think that, you know, there's a fair point to it that maybe the EU would have a more effective and stronger line on Hong Kong right now if Britain was still a member. But then you could also argue the other way that maybe if Britain was still a member, it actually would have been a little bit more restrained on what it said about Hong Kong, because other members may have decided that it was too antagonistic towards China. Just quickly, um, how, is, there, is there any way which listeners can support the work of Hong Kong Watch? Where can we sort of find out more? Sure. I mean, if, yeah, yeah, if you yeah. go to our, our website, uh, hongkongwatch.org, uh, you have all our campaigns there. Uh, obviously, if if your users want to tweet out about the International Lifeboat campaign, that would be great, especially to any countries that aren't the UK, but even, you know, tweeting at the UK government to try and get more details about the BNO offer, that would be fantastic. The other thing, of course, is sort of tweeting out about support for targeted sanctions um, on human rights abusers in China and also in Hong Kong. Um, Dominic Raab talked about the second designation of sanctions being later on in the year, and we think that there's a big campaign to be made with all of the human rights groups that deal with China, looking at the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, um, and of course, Hong Kong about ensuring that the perpetrators of human rights abuses in China don't get off scot-free. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much to Sam for coming on and talking to us about what's going on in hong kong explaining the situation over there um and the work that hong kong watch do if you can support them in any way that you can then that would be i know enormously appreciated um on our behalf because what's going on in hong kong is incredibly terrifying for all of our rights and liberties and freedoms and as morgan outlined it should be should very much be a rallying cause for people who are on the left and people who consider themselves progressives everyone really to get behind you'll hear us again next week have a good week bye-bye